0: We are live! Hello, hello everyone! Welcome everybody, welcome to Strong Tea. I'm Katie. I'm Vicky. And together we make up the Strong Tea team. Now if you haven't listened to one of our podcasts before, our podcasts are all about talking about the taboo topics, the things that people stick their head in the sand over, and sometimes the downright controversial. And today is no exception. So we're excited to have a lovely guest that I'm going to wait for Vicky to introduce. But first off... And this is going to get confusing because we have two Vickies. Mm. Um, but Vic, as our guest, what are you drinking? I am
1: drinking licorice tea.
0: Oh, very
1: nice too.
0: Mm. I'm not really a big fan of liquid like licorice all sorts and stuff like that.
1: No, I don't like this, the actual sweet licorice that you eat, which is very weird. But I love the tea. So explain that. Yeah. Nice. I get I get what you mean because we had I had a tea the other week
2: and it had aniseed in and I absolutely despise aniseed, but actually in the tea it
0: tasted nice. Weird, mm. isn't it? weird, in- interesting. Do yeah. you like a bit of Sambuca? Oh, Ooh. I don't like alcohol.
2: Oh, okay, mm. mm-hmm. Vicky, no other other. Vicky? In my heyday, I would have knocked back a Sambuca, but i Even not liking experience. aniseed. Yeah, well, you know any. Drink it. when when you're a teenager and you're early twenties all those decades ago. Needs must. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> well, what are you drinking then? I it am is drinking... not sambuca in the middle of the day. It's not sambuca
2: in the middle of the day. Um, oh. that's at three o'clock. Um, I am drinking Bird and Blends rhubarb and custard.
0: Oh tea. yes, now you are talking. I love that stuff.
2: It tastes heavenly and I was a bit of a scrub because the other day I left the tea bag in the cup left it overnight came in and it still smelled of sweeties and it made the room smell of rhubarb and custard so I'm just saying if there's a cheaper way of putting a scent in your room that's the Mm. way folks bird and blend
0: you're welcome nice Nice. I'm yeah, I'm down with that. Um, I am also drinking a burden blend and I kind of regret my choice because I struggle to say it, but it's salted caramel labor cushion. You know the Christmas yeah the Christmas shapes. They're like a gingerbready thing with the with the yeah. icing on the outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we want to thank
2: our friends at Bird and Blend as well for sending all of these teas through as well. So thank you, Bird and Blend, for collaborating with us as well.
0: We absolutely do. Very, very nice teas. If you're in the market for teas, please check them out.
2: So can we introduce our absolute goddess of a guest, please?
0: I think we
1: should.
2: Oh, yay! So Victoria Kleinsman is a food freedom and body love coach. She's an inspirational speaker, a podcast host, a writer. Quite frankly, she can and does everything and she is an incredible human to boot. Uh, In her own words, she is a woman who has been through some tough shit. And we are lucky enough to be recording not one, but two episodes with Vic um, to talk about her life experiences with eating disorders and domestic abuse. Um, Now Today we hear about her incredible struggle with anorexia, binge eating and bulimia, which we'll put out a trigger warning now as this episode will contain details of eating disorders, uh, severe mental health struggles and abuse. Um, But we can't wait for you to meet Vic and be as besotted with her as we are. Um, So without further ado, Vic, tell us your
1: story. Oh, what a welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So my story. Okay, where to start? So when I was nine, I started dieting. I was doing Weight Watchers with my mom. Now, I wasn't considered an overweight child. I didn't have a weight problem. But anything that my mom did, I also wanted to do. And I'd grown up around my aunties always dieting, my mom would always dieted. And so I just copied my mom. My mom kind of gave me a high point because Weight Watchers back then was the points. I'm not sure if it's changed since then, but it was points. So she gave me like a high point range so I could quote diet with her without probably actually dieting, but basically do the same actions and be part of something. I also went to the weigh-ins with her. Obviously I wasn't weighed because you have to be I think over 16 or something like that but I still went to the meetings, sat down and watched everyone clap when people lost weight and then not boo when people gained weight but kind of like oh I'm so sorry and how can you do better. So right from a young age weight loss was seen as a huge celebration and a lot of happiness and love and attention and weight gain was seen as the opposite. So I had a natural perfectionism personality. And so the points that she gave me, because I saw the weight loss is celebrated, I internally in my head without sharing it with her thought, well, if I can like do less points than what she's given me, then she'll be like really proud of me and I'll lose weight. And then basically my child brain thought I'd just get more love the smaller that I was. And so I did, lose weight but then my mum it wasn't any kind of danger at that time it was I would because I would also binge with my mum so my mum would get weighed on one day and then after the weigh-in she would go to the shop and I would go with her and would get loads of chocolate eat till you couldn't eat no more and then start again tomorrow and so we did that like on and off for like years and then when I was 13 I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa now I think that is due to the dieting history obviously also, puberty started for me. And that was like very nerving and very kind of what the hell is happening to my body. I want to stay small. I want to stay a child. I'm not ready to be a woman because I started developing underarm hair when I was 10. So I developed quite early on. So I think also a lot of that was like trying to suppress my natural growth, taking take the diets too far. I've learned um, previously through my research that anorexia is actually gen- is genetic and so if you have the um predisposition for the anorexia gene if you get to a certain body weight underweight for you the gene gets switched on that makes sense to me because i needed no willpower so when i used to diet and then since the anorexia like before when i would diet when i was at a higher body weight it would take a lot of willpower and a lot of control and a lot of effort but when I was anorexic, it was as if something had just switched. It was really easy not to eat. It, it felt right not to eat. I didn't have the hunger signals or the, the reward sent to me when I was eating. And so we can definitely go into that, you know, further mm. along with that if you have questions around that. That's really interesting to me. Um, so I was diagnosed. I was in denial for a long time. If it wasn't for my mom, I wouldn't be here. Um I love her very much. I loved her very much, but I hated her at the same time because she would literally like force feed me, had to go to medical weigh ins, all of that. And of course, we can go into further detail on this. If you fast forward to the age of when I was 19, it, it lasted the anorexia from the age of about 13 to 18. When I was 19, I met an older man. And I I won't say too much about this because we're going to go into this in the next episode. Um, And I was in an abusive relationship for six years. And in that time, I developed binge eating disorder. And my weight increased dramatically. I wasn't purging. I wasn't restricting. I was just eating all day, every day. And then when I left that relationship, which is like a Coronation Street episode, and you'll hear when we chat next time, I developed bulimia because I found the gym, became obsessed with the gym. And then my body just changed. Like I I did drop a lot of emotional weight. because I wasn't being abused every day either. So I lost a lot of weight quickly without really trying. I was just kind of getting back on my feet with what normality felt like without being abused. And then the anorexia kind of from previously mixed in with the binge eating. And so then I would starve myself all day binge every night and then purge take laxatives and over exercise and I was in that cycle for from the age of 24 to the age of 30 and it wasn't until only five years ago now because I'm 35 as we record this that I started my personal development, spiritual development, healing journey, hired coaches, did all my own research, studied psychology, became certified And then what I do now is teach women how to fall back in love with themselves and make peace with food in their bodies. So it's been quite a journey for me. (laughs) Yeah, to say the least. I mean, that's a
2: whistle whistle stop tour of something that sounds horrifically traumatic. Mm. Um, What were the effects on your body and mental health being diagnosed at such a young age? I mean, 13.
1: Yeah, well, In terms of my physical body, and I still have some symptoms now that I'm not symptoms, but it's kind of like they haven't stopped since the anorexia. And that is like cold hands and feet. So it's called Raynaud's, but that only developed when I had anorexia. And I've actually, I've not researched this, but I've spoke to people in my work. And obviously, I speak to a lot of women who have had eating disorders. And those that have the genetic condition for anorexia also have Raynaud's even as an adult, which is really interesting. And those that don't know it, it, your hands and feet are often, I mean, they're cold now, they're cold a lot of the time. And when you go outside and it's really cold, it doesn't even have to be really cold. Your body is so protective of your organs because it's so used to being underweight. It overreacts and it takes the blood away from your hands and feet and then sends it to your organs. So your hands go white and you can't, you can't pick, you can't, they're like dead. It's like the norm. If you cut your finger, nothing comes out. Oh my gosh. Um, so I still have that I have I do have my face waxed but I have all hair all over my face and all over my arms from the anorexia because you grow hair everywhere because you're so skinny you need to be kept warm oh my, oh
2: my gosh, gosh. didn't even think of that yeah. I
1: have no idea yeah also that so those are the things that are still with me but now I see them with love and like it's just a way of like owning my story but at the time I mean I believe it's I mean i'm I'm five foot two, so I'm not like really short, but I'm not tall, and I think the anorexia suppressed my growth because I'm a lot shorter than like my family, which is cute now, but it definitely stunned my growth because I wasn't I didn't have the nourishment to grow. I don't know what it's done to my mental to my mental health now. I feel like I'm in a good place now, but it must have you know affected me growing up, and um, but at the time, I was in denial. In a lot of denial, it wasn't. It, my mom took me to the doctors, and then my doctor handed my mom this leaflet, and it said like anorexia nervosa on the front. And I remember completely disassociating myself from that. I'm fine. I'm not sick. Like you know, I'm. It was like this. It's because what happened was the eating disorder was feeling very threatened because now people knew what was happening. The eating disorder, the genetics was like no, 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 no. No one can know because that means things will have to change. And so I was in denial for for a long time. Physically, my body's fine now, but so many women I work with have long term effects from malnutrition that we don't think we think it won't happen to us, but it can and it does. I'm
0: really interested to hear what you said about genetics because mm. I had no idea that there was any form of genetic link. I've I've like I've never heard that before. Was there any history in your family. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you've done into that?
1: Absolutely. So there was no one that I'm aware of that had eating disorders in my family, apart from the usual diet culture stuff that my mum was doing. However, through Tabitha Ferrar, so those, are the, those of you that are interested in eating disorder research, especially anorexia, right? I got the research from her, Tabitha Farrar, it's a genetic component. So what happens is, if you if you watch like any nature channel, some animals do this. There's a breed of pigs that do this. So in back in the day when we had to move to lands of abundant food. So like when if you were living somewhere, the food ran out, we would either die or have to move somewhere. Like how birds fly south for the summer. That kind of biological instinct. So but, um some pigs do this, so then when they go to a certain lower body size they start pacing up and down. So they have this movement compulsion and they will not eat until the farmers like force feed them till a certain weight again, and then they'll magically eat again. And so with the anorexia gene, it helped us to survive like hundreds of years ago, because those of us that had this gene wouldn't just stay around and just die, we would be like, right, we miss we need to move a long distance and a short amount of possible. So that's why the exercise compulsion is so common in anorexia, like you have to keep moving, your pain threshold goes so high you can have so much pain you don't even know because imagine walking miles with no food you can't be sat there feeling in pain because you just want to stop and then you die and then it makes the brain chemistry changes and it makes food a threat. It, it, it allows you to eat little bits along the way. So low calorie, like little scraps of food to keep you alive. But any form of high calorific food or any amount of food is completely unsafe until you reach the land of abundant food. So in nature, it would only have been a matter of weeks or at the very most months before you would get to this land of abundant food. And therefore everyone would feast binge eat, right but we call it feasting because it's a natural biological reaction to restriction you'd gain the weight again and your body would turn the gene off and you'd go on your merrily way but in this modern world food is abundant all around us so when that gene is switched on there is no like environmental aspect to reach the land of abundant food it's all mental and then you keep building the neuropathways pathways to be scared of food to be petrified of weight gain, it's deeper than a fear. It's like a biological instinct. It's not just a mindset thing. And so over time, it's harder and harder to change. And you, then you have taught your brain to be fearful of weight gain to the extremity that no one understands unless they've had mm. anorexia. I'd rather someone have held a gun to me than tell me to eat. I'm finding this fascinating. I mean, it's a powder
2: keg because mm. your body has now been switched into that mode. But with modern day thinking, as particularly in your situation before where you associated that weight loss with
1: love, mm-hmm. it's kind of a powder keg. It's yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's why it can be so hard to get out of the anorexia. Like I'm working with someone at the moment, she had anorexia since she was 15, she's now 40. So she's had it all that time, but there's something within her that's like, I have had enough but I have no idea how to get out of that and that is my favorite client because the amount of change that you can make in a matter of weeks even with the right support but the scariest thing you have to do is eat food because you can do all the psychology and all the the mindset and the rewiring in the world but if your body is still underweight your anorexia gene is going to be on
0: I'm interested to know and I'm I'm sure we're going to come onto this later and we're probably skipping ahead but I'm just like I forget questions if I don't ask them. Um you know you talked about when you were 13 and you were diagnosed and you're in your mid 30s now. Like how has how have things changed in terms of the approach to it because I always remember there was a girl at school who had an eating disorder and people used to just say I don't I don't know why she just doesn't eat. And even the teachers used to talk about it. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, now I'm older and I understand it. And you just think, well, that's so harmful to just say, why don't they just eat? You know, how do you think attitudes from both the professional side of things, but also the social side of things have changed now?
1: It's getting better. But even still in inpatient eating disorder treatment, they encourage, they discourage anorexics to binge eat which blows my mind, but it makes no sense. Anorexics are scared of, petrified of food. They're in, they're in inpatient. They're like being either force fed or given a meal plan where they're watched closely to make sure they're eating that. The second they ask for more food, and I've heard this from people that are speaking, have told me personally, or they eat more than they should. They're said that's a, They're told that's bad because now they're binging. So they're being told to fear the very thing that they fear, And so there's still a lot of work to be done here. But in terms of like professional help, I mean, I've had a lot of therapy, a lot of psychotherapy, but honestly, the thing that's helped me the most is the coaching that I've had, which is why I became a coach, like the self-discovery and the biggest thing that has helped me with my eating disorders is overcoming my fear of weight gain. I am no longer afraid of gaining weight and I never thought I would ever say those words ever. I'm no longer afraid of that. So therefore I can relax and my food can be what my food is going to be. That is at 99.9% of the root cause of the women that I've worked with anyway. There is like, they can be obviously, there's usually trauma linked to it all as well, but it's the fear of gaining weight.
0: Hmm.
1: What would you say is, I mean, you said there's a lot
2: of trauma attached to the reasons as to why these things, but what do you think
1: perpetuates it? I would say wanted to control something in your environment as a child that you perhaps can't. That wasn't the case for me. It was more the path for me was more the aesthetics. be as small as possible. Thinness equals love. I've had trauma of course, as well, but a lot of clients I've worked with have had you no know, child sexual abuse, which as you can only imagine as a child, not being able to control any of that because you're a child the one thing you can control is what you put in your mouth. That is literally it, and that's a safety feeling, because even those that haven't got the eating disorder genetics, and most of us unfortunately are on the on yo-yo dieting for the, for our whole lives. You know, like it when you eat and then feel bad about it, it's safe to go back to controlling and dieting. It it's it's the most it's the most worldly used coping mechanism. An addiction, there is. People think they're addicted to food. You can't be addicted to food. You need that to survive. You're addicted to the pursuit of weight loss.
2: Mm. In relation to that, with the addiction and that power of the mind driving this, um, you said before about um, you know you would have to stop, and if if you know someone found out, or you know that there's that hiding it away. Almost, it's it's your it's your thing, and you're too scared to stop because it's yours. Could you yeah. talk a bit more about that? That that sounds very. I mean, it's obviously dark topic anyway, but it sounds very deep rooted and and quite yeah, very
1: dark. Yeah. It's that coping mechanism again. The eating disorder was like the anorexia I'm talking about more specifically now was like my friend. It felt because of the genetic component, it felt so right not to eat it felt rewarding it almost felt like I was not godlike so I didn't even know what god was at that point but it's like you're different to everybody else but in a better way so I don't know whether the word superiority would have resonated with me back then but there's this there's this separation from the real world component which I think you know people that have had a lot of trauma as a child it feels safe to be separated from the world and so, there was one point that I wouldn't even drink water. I don't even know how I'm literally still alive. I wouldn't even have anything inside my tummy, but my body'd give up giving me hunger signals i i didn't I didn't want to eat anymore and so it is like i you know when someone comes to try and help you it's a it's the biggest threat there is because even if you consciously know all they want to do is love and help you it's a massive threat to like all you've ever known. If you have, depending on how long you've been in the eating disorder for and your safety mechanism. So I was suppressing puberty. I didn't get my period back until I was about 21 because my body didn't feel safe to be a woman. And so there's a lot of like not wanting to live. And this can be unconsciously, like people can consciously say they've got a nice life. I did, I had a great childhood. But there was part of me that didn't feel worthy of living. Didn't think I was good enough because the perfectionism is, was always there. So I would lose weight and be perfect at that. And then I was anorexic. And then when I'd binge eat, I'd overachieve at that. And then binge eat to the extremities. When I was bulimic, I'd be over perfect at that and then do that. So ev- there was no in between because I thought that was average. And that was the biggest insult of all to be called average. I mean, where did that belief come from? <sighs> Wow.
0: Had you, had you heard of eating disorders before you were diagnosed? Had you, you, were you aware of anorexia and what that was?
1: No, actually. I thought that just because you were born, it meant you dieted and that was all you did. I literally didn't know another world. I thought, because everyone around me, everyone was either talking about their weight, wishing they were thinner or dieting or talking about how bad they were because of what they'd ate that day so interestingly enough that's a great question I've never I didn't until I was diagnosed actually know what an eating disorder was because disordered eating was so normal to me
0: right yeah yeah that makes sense
2: yeah
1: mm.
2: it's quite shocking isn't it and I think uh, particularly at the time because we're all of an age I'm older old but the magazines we grew up with you know the the kind of images that were on the front and now social media which is slowly getting better we'll talk about that a little bit later but that kind of imagery it's hard to know any different than striving towards perfection striving towards something that you're not and that's normal because yeah. if you talk to friends at the time it was oh yeah they're gorgeous oh I wish I had thinner legs like that oh, I wish I was like that
1: And it becomes a normal conversation.
2: And that's what's quite
1: alarming. It is. And, you know, 85% of people that have been diagnosed, and these are only the diagnostics, not the ones that haven't, 85% of those diagnosed with eating disorders are not underweight. Oh consider wow. well underweight right what is underweight because if you look at the bmi which in my opinion is bullshit misunderstood information that was made up overnight for american insurance and then changed overnight from 28 to 25 so people became obese overnight mm-hmm. is a complete load of bollocks and so for I take myself for example my natural set point weight which is where I am now and I weigh I weighed myself so I can talk in conversations like this so it makes sense my um, bmi is 29.5 to be considered obese it starts at 30 now all of my blood markers and my health markers are like all in the like really healthy range. Not that health is a moral issue either. I also want to point out like we don't want to be moralistically healthy. That's people want to be healthy, but it's not like a, a something you've succeeded at in, in, in that context. So when I was anorexic, I didn't know what my BMI was, but I was five stone something, which was obviously wow. tiny. Yeah. Even if I was in my, so when I was in the bulimia, I was nine stone four. I looked about seven stones. So I was in the health, I was probably within, I was about 23, 24 BMI when I was bulimic and I, I, my periods had stopped again. I was 9% body fat, which for a woman is just her- horrific. Yeah, I was in the healthy BMI. But now whenever I go to the doctors, I mean, I I refuse to be weighed now anyway. I'm considered overweight and I need to lose weight. And that is so damaging.
0: It's, it's awful, isn't it? I mean, we've talked um previously about um weighing in schools, weighing children and the mm-hmm. whole um letters being sent home to parents um discussing a child's weight. Uh, my question is more about the physical effects. I mean, you talked a lot about the hair growth and also your period stopping, but what what were the other because I imagine being at such a low weight of top five stone? has huge implications on your internal organs and externally as well can you talk a little bit about that
1: I was cold all the time my sister said and I didn't remember this because a lot I think also because it was so traumatic my brain did block a lot of it out I was sleeping all the time or I was exercising so I was doing one or the other so I was either exercising or sleeping I hardly ever went for a wee. In fact, I remember the days that I had to have medical weigh-ins was after school at the end of the day. And so I used to wake up in the morning, not go for a wee. I mean, you imagine how much you need a wee when you wake up in the morning, right? I used to not go for a wee. And then I used to put water bottles in my pockets of my hoodie when I was weighed to weigh heavier so that they wouldn't make me like eat more. And then I would go for a wee at like six o'clock in the evening after the whole... I mean, now I go to the toilet about every bloody hour and a half. I drink that much water. So my body was shutting down. I was slowly dying. Like my 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 hair and nails are like so strong. Like I have the genetic component for naturally strong hair and nails. My nails were brittle. My skin was really dry. I was always cold. I my everything it was my body was slowly shutting down. My my blood pressure and heart rate was so low. And before I was diagnosed, the doctor was like, Oh, yeah, you're just obviously really fit and healthy because like your heart rate's so low. Don't ask about what you if you're nourishing yourself or any of that. And so you, my body was basically shutting down to ready to die. Wow. That's I wow. Yeah. Um I, I kind of want to I want to process
0: each answer because it's just there's just so much oh, wow. information. Yeah. Um, you talked about obviously the weigh-ins being after school and I think it's easy to forget as you you're telling this story about the young age that you were when this happened were you were your friends aware that this was going on did you ever talk to
1: anyone like all your your peers about this or did you keep it very secret i told my best friend who i used to i mean before i was diagnosed i mean i was still pretty young i've always been quite popular and I still was somehow, but I did get chord names of like, I was into horses, so like the skinny horse girl. And my friend knew what was going on, but I was the stronger character out of the two. So she never like, the only time she tried to get me to eat more, the eating disorder is very Mardi as well. The eating disorder is, can be very angry So I would shut the person down who was like trying to, I would be very defensive against my eating. So she just gave up. So I only had like one friend throughout most of school, but then everyone else around, and she always wanted to be skinnier anyway. And so also everyone around you, That's this is the fucked up thing. Everyone's celebrating disordered eating behavior, thinking it's normal. And so, yes, and then it was confusing for me as a child because from the age of nine, I watched my mom celebrate weight loss, and I was celebrated when I lost weight. And then I became anorexic and it was almost like, well, now we're not celebrating you for losing weight. Now it's a really bad thing. So now you were like you need to eat more. And so my brain was also like, this doesn't make sense because now I'm not getting love because I'm too skinny. And then now I'm being force fed. And it was just like, I don't, I do not understand the world I live in right now. And I had the genetic, the, the gene switched on for anorexia. And then I couldn't eat even if I wanted to. I mean, thankfully I was like practically force fed. So I had to eat. And then only when I gained weight, I could start to rewire my brain because I actually had, the anorexia had been switched off then. And then I actually had enough fuel to think because if you imagine your brain's got no glucose, no carbohydrates and no fats, there's 20, and I researched this a few weeks ago, 25% of your gray matter in your brain goes goes away for energy for your organs when you have anorexia twenty five percent because it needs your heart to keep beating that's the last thing that will go is your heart right but everything starts to shut down so as you're saying you're literally dying you are you are dying the amount of professionals that told me that I didn't want to listen Vicky I just I didn't want to listen I was in denial I'd look in the mirror. I could see every single rib, every lump of my backbone, my hip bones was I was walking skeleton, and I didn't think I was fat. I knew I was skinny, but I still wanted to get smaller. It was never enough. And I literally would have died. Sounds like it was utterly all-consuming. Like all
2: you thought about and mm-hmm. yeah, just almost was it was it a case of it is what you were? living for in a perverse way even though it's
1: killing you that's it's what kept you going hundred percent that was all I woke up thinking about that's I would panic at the mere thought of someone bringing me offering me food that wasn't on my like allowed plan I would weigh everything out my mum would weigh, get my breakfast ready for the morning and then when she wasn't looking I'd quickly weigh it to make sure she'd like given me the it's the control the obsessive. I also had OCD with it, so I was blessed enough to have a horse, and that was actually what kept me alive. Because my mom basically said, in the end, look, Vic, if you don't eat, we're literally selling your horse. And I was like, fuck. And then I just just used to eat and then scratch my nails down my face and make my face bleed when I was eating and cry and scream. And mom said I ran into the road at one point and nearly got ran over. I don't remember that because I didn't want to eat. And I had this OCD thing where like anything in my bedroom and anything in my horse's space had to be so perfect. If there was like one thing out of place, it was like the end of the book. It's like, it's like I couldn't cope. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mom used to muck my horse's stable out for me sometimes to help me. I was fuming number one, because she took away energy expenditure that I could have done and number two, the line wasn't perfectly straight in my freaking horse's, st- a horse in a stable where it shits. And <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember being the rage that I had inside of me because that line wasn't straight. So the OCD, that's also very common with the anorexia as well. It just completely takes over your whole entire life.
2: Well, it, I have, you, you don't have
1: a life. I was
2: going to say, what? How did that impact your life? What you do because obviously you were at school, then you went to secondary school, college, and so on. how How did it impact
1: on your everyday what you were doing? Well, unless I was at school or with my horse, I was either thinking about food. I used to like to smell food. And be, I, I used to like to be around food, but I wasn't ever going to eat it. So it consumed my thoughts twenty four seven. I don't know how I got my exams. At, I don't know how I got my exams at school. I got an A star in food tech, funnily enough, the top oh. grade I could ever get because I was obsessed with anything to do with food, anything. I was obsessed with it. And my brain was too, because ultimately I was starving to death, but I wasn't allowing myself to eat. So I don't know how I got my grades, what I did, but it was every day, just how skinny am I? What can I avoid eating today? And that was it for years.
2: Sounds like a game. Almost like a really sick game with yourself. And testing yeah, and yourself.
1: I, was, I was winning and I would have won when I died, to be honest. Oh.
0: You you talk about the culture that you'd grown up around with your, your mum dieting and your auntie's dieting and that. Did they try and adapt their way of living to support you when you were trying to go through recovery and they were trying to sort of get you to eat? Did they adapt what they did around you?
1: My sister did, bless her. And she said she used to force feed herself in front of me to show me that it was safe to eat. And she oh. said she remembered being really full and she was like, just eating chips in front of me to try and show me. Oh. I remember my mum didn't diet when I was anorexic and I know she had to go on depression tablets because of she didn't know how to cope. She said to me, um, this was only like when I was an adult, when I've talked about it with her, she said there was one time where she dropped me off for that, my, my therapy that I didn't want to be in. And she'd park somewhere she shouldn't have. And then a man was coming out to her moaning at where she was parking and she just broke down. Cause she was like, my daughter's dying. Mm. And I feel upset now. My daughter's literally dying and you're moaning that I'm parked somewhere. Like, so I have, and not a lot of guilt anymore, but I had a lot of guilt to process because of what I put my mum through. Mm. Um, so she did she didn't diet when I was anorexic but you know and this is not no blame to her funnily enough a couple of years after I'd weight restored she was dieting again because it was just so ingrained and then still to this day to this day and I've helped her and supported her and she knows what I've been through it's so ingrained in her she still grabs her stomach and it's like oh look at that I need to and, I, and I'm just like I just let it go. Like I'm on my journey. I'm here to support her. She hasn't got the genetic discomponent for eating disorder, of, thank goodness. But there's more to life than what you look like, and that's the biggest lesson I have had to learn. I mean, I'm quite spiritual. My soul definitely chose to come here, and the hardest lesson to learn was it doesn't matter what you look like. It's what's inside that counts, and ironically. I've been told I'm so pretty all my life. And ever since I, before I had the eating disorder, when I was in primary school, the dinner ladies would say, oh, you'll break lots of men's hearts. You will, oh, look at your eyes and your dark eyelashes and your blonde hair, which they think were complimenting the child, right? And yes, they are, but it's all about looks. Mm. Always, there's more to us than that. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the whole,
0: you know, that's what's ingrained in people. And, you know, I speak about this because it's something that affects me daily. Um, you know, I, I've i gone to, through stage where I can't even look at myself in the mirror because I detest the way that my body is. Mm-hmm. How hard is it to overcome something like that? Because it's a mindset, isn't it? That you are, you've done for so long, you know, putting the eating disorder to one side, just the mental state of things to be in that mindset it's something you've done for so long it's almost like a habit so how do you change the way that you think
1: yes I love this question because I haven't I have a mantra for you and for anyone listening as well Katie loving my body is a mindset I create for myself and you at saying that now might sound that might feel to you that it's, it's completely not doable for you right? But I promise you, and all those listening, if you can't go, if you go to the mirror now, and you hate what you see, and you wish it was different, whether you take action by dieting or not, please don't, because diets don't work anyway. I promise you, you can change that perception you have for yourself. And the way you do that is it takes a bit of time, not a lot of time. But if you imagine, like from the second you were conceived, even in the womb, like our unconscious mind can hear stuff, you're hearing diet talk and thin is good and fat is bad. And so it's so ingrained, but you can absolutely rewire your brain to teach your brain not to be scared of weight gain or fatness. And that comes with a lot of deep self-love work, a lot of acceptance first, acceptance, surrender, finding proof that it is safe because unconsciously we don't think it's safe to love our bodies without looking a certain way we think that as a, as a human we think thinness is an innate human need however love and acceptance are a, a innate human need but we think we attain that through thin thinness because of the society we live in but when we start to understand where diet culture has come from to begin with It brings up a lot of anger for a lot of people. Anger is better than feeling disempowered and hopeless. And then we can start to understand that this was all a suppressor, like all to have us suppress and to keep women preoccupied as well. And the more we feel insecure about ourselves, the more we spend money trying to fix ourselves. So then, you know, the diet culture and beauty culture are laughing about that. Not the people who are doing it personally, but the whole, you know, who created the society in the first place. And so through deep self-love work, body image work, mirror work, and acting as if, so there's a lot of action orientated as well, over time, and it can be months, not years, you will change your perception. Because when you change on the inside, everything outside changes. And we attract what we believe about ourselves. That's how the universe works. So if you believe that your body isn't as you want it to be, you will attract people, places, things, and experiences that mirror that tr- that belief back to you. Mm. So it starts with choosing to want to believe differently and yeah. then doing the steps to get there. And it's so possible. It is so possible.
2: It's so powerful. And it I think what you're saying as well is the kind of giving yourself permission to do it. Like it's your choice. You have a choice to love your body and you're the only one that's going to give yourself permission to do that you don't need anyone else permission you're you're stopping yourself yeah. and what you said is so so powerful and we had George Mycock on talking about um masculinity and muscle yeah. dys- dysmorphia and um he talked about his own eating disorder and how that impacted him and you just touched nicely there about the gendered approach now I'm I'm
1: assuming that your client base is predominantly female yes predominantly female I do work with men Mm -hmm. but my niche like my marketing like the way I speak is is aimed mainly at women that's not to say more women suffer than men but I also do believe that to be true whether it's just that men don't speak up either but if you think back if you I mean look back into history women were suppressed because we're so powerful and then it keeps us preoccupied if we're thinking about food 24 7 we're not thinking about what our passions are and how we can make money and how we can you know take up space in the world oh god I love you
2: <laughs> I, I could
1: talk feminism all day Less oh, yeah, <laughs> it's
0: true I, I don't I honestly I've got so I have got so many so many questions so when you work with people because you you are a coach now and you've changed your life and you're using your own experience Mm -hmm. and your own lived experience to help and support others how do you work with people that are going through this or who have been through this
1: yeah so my favorite way to work with anyone is one-to-one so it's very intimate so it's it's in a container of three to four months that I work with women at any one time. Some, some like to work with me longer. But honestly, if the woman or the person is ready and willing to change, four months is all we need. Because whenever you work with me one-to-one, you get my group coaching for life anyway, so you, you're you always able to get on a call with me in a group environment, even after the four months that we've had coaching together. And so it's one to one. I have 24 seven WhatsApp support, which is really key because, you know, one of the reasons I didn't become a therapist, because when I was going through my own journey and I knew I wanted to help people with this, I was like, OK, well, what are my options? Like coach, therapist, like psychotherapist, obviously all the studies that you need to do to be able to practice that legally therapist was interesting, interesting to me but because i'd had personal experience from hiring my own coach it's and coaches have no boundaries they can do basically what they want and so i didn't have a therapist that could give me 24 7 whatsapp support and so i work with clients i meet every week on zoom zoom video Twenty four seven WhatsApp support. I have a four month program that I've created, which is all the knowledge. It's like the school of like everything I teach. They have that for life, and then there's group coaching as well. And so everyone comes to me at different parts of their journey. Most have suffered extreme trauma. Like I, I seriously think I've heard it all, and I'm really good at being strong to hold that space when women are sharing. Um And some women come to me with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, or just feeling well, just feeling it's like not nice to feel obsessed and controlled by food. And so I meet them where they're at. I give them what they need in, in each moment. And then, you know, the biggest thing about hiring a coach is choosing change and then swapping that investments. So that's why the money is also important. Because when you're when some when a woman comes to me and they're like, right, I'm ready to change, and I'm so ready, I'm gonna pay this amount of money. And then they sh- they what happens when someone does that? They show up for themselves, they do the work, they get the transformation, and then it's a whole ripple effect. So then then they're, they're then cycle breakers. So you two are cycle breakers for your generation, meaning that the work that you're doing and the people that you're learning from and all of that you're breaking those cycles in your, in your family. So you're no longer going to be in the disordered eating, like obsessed with like all of that, you're breaking that. And so imagine in generations to come from your children's children, they will not have learned that from you either. Mm. And so that's how we change the world. Like, first of all, you have to start with you. Mm. And then I've chosen not to have children, but I'm helping so many people in my business. And it, it's, it's life changing in every sense Mm. of
2: the word I love that idea of cycle breakers Mm. um because myself and Katie talked on a previous episode about body image and so on and my mum was always going on about her weight and dieting and you know and it stayed with me and now I have a daughter I know the impact that it had with my mum constantly looking in the mirror saying I'm fat and things like that that I don't want that for Ellie I want you know i want to break that chain of you know having to constantly think about what your body looks like and appeasing others and that everything you were saying before about it's all about the aesthetic
1: yeah. i don't
2: want that for my daughter i will carry that to my point now but it is not going to go on any further and i find that hugely powerful um going back to what you said i mean you you obviously are incredibly strong in holding these spaces for women who are perhaps at the absolute height or bottom of where they are in their eating disorder is it difficult to hear about their journeys and their experiences and current struggles and is there any triggering things for you how how do you how do you handle that
1: there isn't there has been but i know how to take care of myself so not that long ago, I have had a lot more anorexia clients come to me. And so because I still I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist anymore, but if I'm doing something, I'm giving it my all. And so I would continue, I'm always researching, I'm always bettering myself, even with all the knowledge I have, I'm still learning. There's we'll never stop learning, right? And so Know what it and I'll, I'll explain the trigger part in a moment. But what it does for me now, when I see women on a consultation call and they're crying, 99% of women cry. And then I'm like, at the start of the call, I, I welcome them to the space. I let them know that this is a completely judgment free space and all tears are completely welcome. And they joke about maybe I'll cry. They're crying because we're going deep. And when I see women, crying because they hate themselves so much it breaks my heart number one because I know how they feel and number two they don't have to feel that way they don't have to dread looking in the mirror and there's another way so a a way that I like is this podcast a visual no no but we can we can include stuff on the post on our website I'll draw it for you and I'll describe it because this is the best way to describe and this might help you Katie with your the way you see your body this is the best way to describe where you are now and where I am now and like how I'm sat here like body love is possible for you and it's and it can feel so like far away from where someone is and it's like I used to think oh it's all right for you you can do it but I'm gonna be the expectation that it won't work for right so those of you that are on the podcast that aren't looking... It's, lucky, like, it's like you can see inside my brain when you said that. <laughs> oh, girl, I've been... I've been there, right? <laughs> so those of you on the, on the podcast, I've got a piece of paper and I've drawn a circle, just a plain circle for now, right? And then what I've done now is I've taken a piece of the circle and made like a... like It's like a piece of pizza pie. So if you imagine a pizza and I've drew one slice in that circle, right? This part of the pizza, this slice... Is what I know, what I know? And I'm going to ask for a, a, um one from each of you. So I know that I know how to ride horses. Katie, what do you know that you know how to do? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> breastfeed my baby. Perfect. Vicky, what do you know that you know how to do? I know that I know
2: how to make the perfect scrambled eggs.
0: oh. oh. Oh, what was that noise? Well, no, I. Well, I'm I've excited never made us it. scrambled
2: eggs. Well, no,
0: we've never, we've never talked about this scrambled egg situation. We'll do that. We'll do that after. We'll do that off, off, off air. Right? Okay.
1: Okay. Right. And then you've got for anyone who's not on camera. All the rest of the circle, which bearing in mind we've only so far, like colored one slice in of the big circle, all that rest of the space of the circle, I've just put random dots on it. That's what I know that I don't know. So I know that I don't know how to breastfeed a baby. Right. So, Katie, what do you know that you don't know how to do?
0: Uh. I'm gonna go with one that Vicky knows how to do, which is uh raising chickens.
1: Interesting. Vicky, mm. what do you know that you
2: don't know how to do? How to ride a horse.
1: There we go. <laughs> right. You broke up a little bit. Are you back? Hello. Oh, yep, we're there. I'm frozen. Oh, yes, I can hear you. Um, yep, it's all good. carry
0: on. <laughs> we're <Way Okay>. back.
1: <laughs> awesome. And so everything else, so all the space outside of this fake circle pizza thing, so the infinite space outside the pizza, like in the whole world, that is what I don't know what I don't know. I can't give you an example of what I don't know what I don't know because I don't know that I don't know it with me yeah right and so in terms of like where someone is now in their eating disorder which they've had for however long they cannot even fathom or even think that a different world could be possible for them especially one where they're in complete food freedom and where they love their body and that's the magic of coaching I get you or them to, first of all, knowing that you don't know the thing. And then I get you to knowing that you know it and then experiencing it for yourself. So of course you don't know how the F to love your body and you can't think it's even possible for you right now because your brain is wired a different way. You've not created the possibility for that to be your reality before. And so this is something completely different. And so that's the best way that I can use to describe people being where they are seeing me or somebody else being where they want to be mm. and the gap between that isn't that won't work for me it's i promise it will work for you all you have to do is want to change trust me in the process which is why it's so important to work with someone who you trust fully and who you can be safe with mm. and show up and do the work that i or the person you trust suggests and it, it's literally yours. Mm. I would never have thought, like I said towards the beginning of this podcast, I never thought the words, I am no longer afraid of weight gain and I love myself, would ever come out of my mouth. Unless, well, I love myself. I would have said that if I was like a size six. Well, that's not love. Mm. That's loving the way my physical body looks because I'm so insecure. I need attention from everybody else. But true love. Unconditional love, how you feel towards your children. When we give that to ourselves, because we are the source of that, if we say we're lacking love or we're lacking attention or lacking compassion, we can give that to others. So, therefore, we are the source of what we say we seek. We just have to practice giving it to ourselves, which society doesn't like us to do, because then we won't be spending money and chasing our own tail and get on the hamster wheel trying to lose weight and look a certain way we can just show up who we are nourish our bodies our mind our souls play with makeup and clothes because it feels good it's not about not caring at all and not giving a shit but you do all of these action steps from a place of like unconditional self-love and freedom around food.
2: Vic, I just want to take you and
1: put you in my pocket for
2: all the time so I can just grab you and just go give me a talking to, Just it's that's fine. what you're saying is so powerful. You we really at school. They really should, because I think, as you're saying, we've got to a place where it's normal to yo-yo to to look at a benchmark that society sets us as the norm and to aim towards it. When that's not a normal state, the normal state, as you're saying, is to feel that unconditional love with yourself, that self-respect, that having dignity. And it's yeah when you put it
1: as plainly as you did it's quite an eye-opener yeah and you know another little like kind of mantra that I share with my clients is it's your job as a human to take care of yourself mentally physically emotionally when you do that your body is going to be whatever she's going to be and the body diversity is a thing it's like a poodle looks different to a great dane Well, they're still dogs, yeah. right? And so when we fully accept that body diversity is real and we take care of ourselves because then people come back with the, oh, you're promoting obesity. And I mean, I love these arguments because I can explain my view. And what about if you sat in at McDonald's five times a day? Well, then my argument is your body doesn't want to eat McDonald's five times a day because your body wants to be healthy. And if not McDonald's isn't bad, but if you're genuinely taking care of how you feel physically, emotionally and mentally, you won't be choosing to eat McDonald's five times a day unless, and this is where social class comes into it, unless that's all you can afford. And that's another conversation mm-hmm. that we you know, that we could get into another time because a lot of like dieting and obesity and all of that is in the lower class people from the studies as well because they can't afford fresh fruit mm-hmm. and vegetables and they're made wrong for it. Mm-hmm. And
2: again, I think... The government particularly over here in the uk they were hot on kind of healthy eating for a little while and trying to educate the masses to but then that stopped short as soon as the funding kind of ran out and so now you know that there seems to be a gap between how to actually eat healthily and wisely on a budget and you know yeah. we're going through an economic crisis right now here and so you can just see how health and eating and so on it's gonna it's just gonna spiral again
1: yeah. And the more diets there are, you know, like this whole, the, imbe- the obesity is like at an all time high, mm. where we have the most diets that we've ever had. That is no coincidence. There's a correlation for sure. The more knowledge we have about weight loss and diet, the more people are obese. And that's because dieting and shame in body image Perpetuates the restriction, which causes binge eating and all of that. So, dieting's the actually the problem mm. here. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I I'm conscious of um of the amount of time we've been doing this, but I I literally could talk and talk and talk about this. But I've one question because it's something that Vicky and I are going to cover on another podcast um in a couple of weeks' time. Social media. Now, obviously, social media, um don't think was around when you when you were 13 or around about that age um I'm just because we're similar ages so I'm just trying to think about when it when it sort of hit everything but um how do you think now social media impacts people with eating disorders and uh, you know people do you think it makes something which someone would have inside them inherently Harder to beat away because it's being thrown at them? Or do you think because social media is so prominent that more people have eating disorders than they would have had before? Does that make sense? I don't know yeah. if I just worded that.
1: <laughs> I think social media can be unhelpful and can cause more eating disorders. However, if you control what your feed is, what you're following, it can be the opposite and it can help you through your recovery or to body image and self-love. So it depends on how you're using it. That's the thing. It It's so both ways. I didn't have it. I didn't even have a mobile when I was 13. So, and I wish that I'd had camera phones so I could post more anorexic photos of me. I had loads of photos. My dad chucked them all away. I literally have one photo of when I like of me anorexic and I had clothes on, but you can, you can still see and all the rest were chucked away. And if I had had social media too, I already remember looking at pro Anna sites on the internet, which is obviously very damaging. God knows what I would have done if I could have seen my my body type skinny. I mean, probably not as skinny being promoted and celebrated online like they are doing today Mm so damaging and so the answer is extremely damaging but my recovery a huge part of that was looking at women my size or bigger on Instagram being confident in their body and that is scientifically proven as well to rewire your brain and to allow yourself to feel more confident in the body you have so it's such like a it's it's like a double-edged sword it's it's either way
0: but you yeah.
1: have got to be responsible for what you choose to follow and if you're serious about recovery unfollow anyone that doesn't make you feel great about yourself but then this is the problem isn't it people that haven't developed an eating disorder they they're just innocently scrolling and if they're being bombarded with this is like when we had the magazines I remember still to this day seeing a picture of Britney Spears on the front cover of closer magazine with a tiny bit of cellulite circled in red with a big arrow. Like she's let herself go. And I remember thinking, Holy shit. Cellulite is the worst thing in the world. So it's the same thing as what we experience, but just on your phone, like easier accessible. And so any parents that are listening, it may sound like, and I'm not a parent. It may sound like over controlling, but just control or at least look at what your daughters or sons are consuming because Mm -hmm. that's where they get a lot of influence from. So it's, yeah, it needs to be controlled because it can be very damaging, but it can also be extremely liberating and helpful. Sure.
2: Vic, we've talked about so much and there's still so much to talk about. We we should have made this a double feature. (laughs) But we offer all our guests at the end of the episode a chance to have a final sip. So this is your chance to use our podcast to spread a message that you want to give, send to our listeners, to the world, anything you like. Um, so what would be your final sip? My
1: final sip would be. To those that are struggling, it doesn't have to be this way. Everything that got you in. The position you're in now, whether that be with food, with abuse, with anything that you're struggling with, you have everything you need to get yourself out of it Too the characteristics that got you in this will get you out of it. And all you need to do is decide you want better for yourself and then get help. You don't have to do this alone. So many women come to me and they're so ashamed to share things with me. And I have 10 other examples of what I've done exactly the same as that. And they just feel so seen and so understood. And this can be such a lonely illness, any eating disorder, especially the binge eating, the embarrassment, the amount of stories I share with women, they all of a sudden feel heard and seen and they're not alone. And then they have this like hope. All you need is hope. If you have a tiny glimmer of hope from this conversation Mm -hmm. that it's possible for you, That's all you need. Allow me to do the rest. I have a free podcast. I have so much free content on social media. I DM you for free. Like I give so much away for free because you don't have to do this alone. And if you do have the resources to be supported like one-to-one or in a group, then I'm here for you as well. But reach out. It's possible. This doesn't have to be this way. That's my message. So thank you for allowing me to share that.
0: No, oh, thank you, Vic. Honestly, this has been mm. this has been eye opening. It yeah. really has. I mean, to listen to your story and the rawness and mm. what you what you've experienced and where you are now, just shows the possibilities that are available for other people. And I can't thank you enough for that. So, thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
0: And we will include all your details on our um, blog post on our website as well, so that if anyone wants to get in touch with you and any other support networks that you think might be um, good for people as well. Um, so thank you, Vic, once again, for coming on to Strong Tea and talking. And we're going to see you again soon, aren't we? Next, Next week. week. <laughs> thank you
1: so much it's been a pleasure to have this conversation really i know thank oh, you thank we've you. we've enjoyed it and we'll
0: uh, we'll be back for more tea soon um but thank you and if you have been listening to this and you want to hear more please check out the back catalogue on all um major um podcasting platforms just to just search strong tea chat and if you like what you hear we do have a support us page on our website where you can buy us a coffee so uh we hope tea. To see you or tea or tea or tea. tea or tea yeah we're not we're not hot chocolate
2: tea. hot chocolate yeah gin prosciutto tri- tri-
0: latte wine. yeah yeah that kind of shots stuff. of sambuca Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no seriously guys thanks ever so much and we will catch up with you uh very soon for another episode of strong tea thanks everyone bye, bye.